Hello and welcome to the One Sealed Letter podcast, where we explore the legacy of letter writing and bring this beautiful art form into the 21st century. I'm your host, Kay Collier, the voice and warm body behind this podcast, and Catherine Hastings and Company, our sponsor. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about how technology affects the way that we communicate. I like imagining how particular types of communication that we have now would have been done in the 1800s or even earlier. One of the things that I was thinking about is catfishing, and I've been thinking about how I know so many people online, and I just have this inherent trust that people are who they say they are, um, and that people trust that I am who I say I am. And I thought, well, okay, well, I've seen photos of friends, or I get to know their voice, or things like that. So there is that inherent trust that you can build online, but to me it seemed like a really unique thing that you could have a, you know, a bio and everything, but you don't actually know for sure if that's the real person. For those of you who do follow me on social media, I don't want you to worry. This isn't me coming out as, ha the greatest catfish con ever. No, it's just um, thinking about how our technology in some ways gives us confidence in understanding who people are, but also can sow seeds of doubt as well. And so I was wondering about catfishing in the 1800s and well, wouldn't it actually have been a lot easier for people to disguise who they were if they were writing letters? And that got me thinking about big catfishing schemes that we have now where people think that they're chatting with somebody in usually some you know Eastern European country. I know there have been probably not as much recently um, with the war in Ukraine, but before um, whole companies in Ukraine where they would have these um, online websites or I guess all websites are online, um, but these online businesses where men could chat with women in Ukraine and they would be charged for the amount of time that they're chatting. And then hopefully at some point they would, you know, get to meet the woman and maybe they would have her move to the U.S. and they would marry. Um, and so I was thinking about, okay, that's a very unique thing, but there had to have been services like this in the past. And it would have been a lot harder to know if a service was legitimate in the past just because there isn't that level of transparency um, that we have online where if let's say somebody's scammed online there are places that they can report it they can report it to the FTC they can report it to the FBI there are notifications for people warning of scams people can go on social media and share what happened to them or they can go on a podcast and talk about it and so the repercussions now um, seem to be bigger and they seem to move more quickly. Um, when I was starting to research some of the topics around letter scams, I found that there were um, itinerant um, con men that would basically just go from town to town around the U.S. and they would just perpetuate the same scam over and over again and it was very hard for them to be caught because the jurisdictions weren't talking with each other. If somebody were walking from one place to another or hopping on a train, they could easily basically just disappear and move on to the next place to run their con. I read about one man who traveled across the country. There were accounts of him in Ohio, but also as far as Oregon, so really moving. He would go into a hotel. He'd act um, overly depressed when he would check in. And then 
at one point he would call for help to the front desk and they would come in and he'd say that he'd took taken I don't remember the exact amount but basically too much laudanum too much opium he was overdosing and then they would see next to him this suicide note and so they thought oh no this poor man he's attempted suicide they'd call the doctor they'd call the priest they would get him all the help lo and behold he would survive because he actually didn't <laughs> take any laudanum probably uh, and then the town would feel the sympathy of this savior um, of this um person who's suffering that they have saved they would give him money they would help him be on his way everyone would feel great for helping this stranger and then he'd go on to the next town and he did that all over the country and it was really hard for people to actually catch him or do anything about it just because of the nature of the time that they lived in my research got me more into mail order brides and how that worked. And so that's where I'll focus the bulk of this episode. But it's coming from the research that I'm doing about understanding the way we communicate and how that changes over time. I still feel like letters obviously are very important for our life now, but they serve more niche role than they did before. Before letters were one of the broadest forms of communication, where now they're more, at least for me, an activity of leisure and reflection, really building closer connection with people that I love, not necessarily needing to give them the most urgent news. Urgent news can be done by text or call, obviously. When I started thinking about what I knew about mail order brides, I immediately thought of the West. I grew up in the Sierra. I grew up um, near some pretty famous mining towns. And there were stories about people who'd come west in 1849 with the gold rush, camps and camps of men. They didn't have any women there or they had um, sex workers, but not really anyone that they could settle down with. And so I knew that there was um, a campaign to get women to move west, but I didn't really know much about it. In thinking about my gut feel or the assumptions that I had, I just thought these women must have been totally impoverished. They must have not had any good options. They must have been somehow pressured into moving this. The idea of moving west thousands of miles to marry someone you don't even know. Moving into a territory that's incredibly violent. There were a lot of dangerous men in the west. I just thought that the women who would have been in that situation probably wouldn't have been doing that with their eyes wide open. But in my research, I realized that that was the case sometimes, but it actually wasn't the majority of cases. The term mail order bride is a bit of a misnomer. It's the idea that you would you know, write someone by letter and then eventually marry them, obviously. And it could be called correspondence, courtship. Let's see, I'm forgetting the other. It has the term epistolary, so letter writing, basically courtship. <laughs> But the initial mail-order bride actually didn't have too much to do with the mail. It started with the settlement in Jamestown. That was one of the uncomfortable things that I found in researching this topic is that mail-order brides are so directly linked to colonization. Basically, when a new group of people go into another area, it's usually men. They're the ones who are building the places that they're going to to be in or you know pushing the boundary of a land forward to help quote unquote settle that area they need women to do that and so 
when I was initially researching this, I was really thinking about the women and what it must have been like for them. But then I realized there was this other issue of, you know, colonization and thinking about the bigger scale of what they're actually trying to accomplish by bringing women into a new place. The concepts of mail order brides, pretty much people are always talking about the United States, but there is reason to believe that this happened in other places where there was colonization as well. Even just as far back as the British colonizing Ireland, there's some evidence that shows that they had brought English women to Ireland to help colonize Ireland. So a lot of times it does have to do with race, but it's not always about race. It's usually just about whatever is the group of people that are there already. They are considered unmarriageable and the people that are coming in want to bring in their own people to make their colony. So mail order brides, it is directly tied to colonization. There's a lot to deal with racism, racism too. With that too, it, it wasn't always the exact same model. The Virginia colony sponsored 140 brides to come to Jamestown. The average age of these women was around age 20. The colonists who were coming to Jamestown really didn't have often the, the intention of staying. It was dangerous. Um, there was a lot of sickness. There was starvation. Obviously, not a lot of you know cultural things happening like there would have been at home. It was really a struggle. And so it was more seen as just a business venture. Um, Jamestown, obviously being formed as a business venture, meant that it didn't have a group of women who ideologically wanted to move to Jamestown. That's different from places uh, up in New England where you had the Puritans and they had a sense of, you know, divine providence and manifest destiny. And the women were coming to North America for a very specific religious reason and dedication. And they had a reason that they wanted to stay. Jamestown was obviously different because it was first and foremost an economic venture. The men who um, had come to Jamestown, ideally they would just stay about three years, they'd make a ton of money, then they'd return to England and marry and their, you know, their fate had turned and, and they were doing much better if they survived. A lot of men, though, once they got there, they felt really disillusioned by it. They realized that the native populations were living much better and they would actually abandon the settlement. It was illegal for them to do so. The punishment for... Um, for leaving Jamestown was hanging. And so even though it was a huge risk for the men to take, many of them were willing to do that just because the conditions were so bad and life um, among the, the native populations was so much better. And so there was some intermarriage with men of Jamestown abandoning the settlement and, and marrying native women. But the you know business of um, the Virginia Company they really didn't want that. They wanted to form a new colony and have people settle, settle down there. And so um, that's why, you know, in the early 1600s, they started bringing the women across. Interestingly enough, they had very specific requirements for the women. They didn't want to choose women who were totally destitute or didn't have any options. They didn't want this to be a form of kidnapping, um, even though actually in the 1500s and 1600s, kidnapping was very common. People would kidnap to find, um, you know, wives or brides or um, have servants for their homes. Kidnapping happened all over. 
but for Jamestown, they really wanted these women to go willingly. And in order to make that happen, they knew that they needed to give the women more power and more money. Basically, if a woman were coming to Jamestown, she would be set up in a household. She was given um, a dowry. And then she had the choice to marry or not. She didn't have to just go to, to Jamestown and marry any person. She could marry or she, or she didn't have to. Um, totally up to her. There were advantages, obviously, to marrying. The way that a lot of women actually ended up becoming the most powerful was to marry. I mentioned it's a very dangerous place. People are dying and, you know, there's so much disease and starvation. Women would marry. Then once they became widows, they'd marry again. And some women did this multiple times. And through that, they became incredibly wealthy. But they had entirely choice of partner. They had more time to decide. Um, back on the continent um, or back in England, the women didn't have that level of power where in these early colonies with mail order brides, if somebody didn't prove of somebody they didn't have to marry, there'd be another person. The ratio of women to men was so favorable to women that the women had a lot more power. In Jamestown, once a woman married, her husband was responsible for paying back the cost of her passage. The passage, I think it was 120 pounds of tobacco. Because of the 120 pounds of tobacco, these women were often referred to as the tobacco brides or the tobacco wives. It wasn't a requirement, though, that they marry anyone or that they marry someone who could pay back the passage fee. So if they married a man who ended up being too poor to pay that 120 pounds of tobacco, the um, Virginia company would just basically call that a loss. But hopefully, you know, they'd end up marrying and then either marry someone wealthy who could pay it or over time, they'd be able to pay that back. France also implemented systems for mail order brides. New France was probably the most successful in this. Um, initially, the French government wanted to promote intermarriage between the native populations and the settlers, thinking that intermarriage would help with assimilation and the native populations would then assimilate to the French culture and they could build this French society with the immigrants and the people who are already living there. But just like in Jamestown, a lot of the colonists found that the native populations had a much better way of living. They were happier, they were healthier, there was more freedom. And so they weren't actually assimilating to, um, the native populations weren't assimilating to the French culture. It was the other way around. There was a, uh, I guess it was a, I'm, and I'm probably going to misquote this, but there was a, a leader um, within the Huron tribe who'd met some French minister and basically said to the French minister, your men have become such wonderful Hurons. And so basically praising the assimilation that the colonists um, had done. So the French government didn't like this. They wanted more power and to have their um, society. They wanted Jesuit leaders in that area. And they brought in a, a system of mail order brides that was called the King's Daughters. And this started in the mid-1600s, so about 20 to 30 years after the mail order brides in Jamestown. And it was a much larger operation. I'd mentioned Jamestown was 120 women. 800 brides emigrated to New France. 
And New France is now, uh, it's a part of the U.S. and Canada. So you think of kind of um, upper New England and then areas kind of around into Quebec. The mail order brides, similar to um, was done in Jamestown, were sponsored by the government. And they were given passage um, that was paid for. They were also given a dowry. The women had a lot of um, uh, power as well. Just like in Jamestown, they could decide to marry or not. It was totally up to them. They also had premarital con contracts, so prenuptial agreements. All of the premarital contracts would allow the women to keep their dowry if for some reason the marriage didn't work out. But also sometimes they were allowed to keep a percentage of the property of the husband if the marriage didn't work out. And it was quite revolutionary that the women had so much power. And one of the reasons that they did was because they had so much more bargaining power, the ratio of women to men was one to six. And so if a woman were courting a man who didn't want to sign her prenuptial agreement, she could find another person. And so this meant that women were able to gain a lot of power. Um, also, once women were married and maybe widowed, um, they would hold even more power after that. The success of the king's daughters, so the um, king's daughters are the, the group that were mail-order brides in Quebec, was so successful that three-quarters of the population today descends from those women. One interesting thing about the king's daughters in New France was that a lot of them came from nobility. There ended up being so many noble women that came over that there weren't enough men of high rank to be able to marry them. So there weren't enough you know, generals or other people in positions of power in New France to be able to vary at the level of these women of nobility. Thinking of how many of them were noble, that might give you an idea of how favorable it was for these women to come to New France. The freedoms that they had obviously helped. There were economic freedoms that they had. They had choice of partner. There also wasn't the religious persecution um, in France that was happening back on the continent. Thinking of things like um, the reaction to the counter-reformation and women being burned as witches, none of that was happening in New France. So for a lot of women, they were able to have more autonomy and more power, and it was in some ways a much safer and more egalitarian society. I mentioned that there were so many women who were of nobility in New France that's a clear contrast to the Jamestown settlement. A lot of the mail order brides in Jamestown, there were 150 total. Only eight of those came from nobility. And in that case, a lot of them only came from minor ties to the nobility. For as successful as the king's daughters had been in New France, the next wave of French mail order brides was to Louisiana and it was anything but successful. It started about 50 years later and this um, basically New France had requested more brides for the Louisiana colony. It goes back to the ideas of colonization and expansion. The Louisiana colony was quite small. They felt a pressure from uh, the American colonies coming closer and putting pressure on them, and so they really knew that they needed more people. And so they started a, a system of recruitment that was very similar. It had free passages and it had dowries. 
but there was one crucial difference, and this was its downfall. They didn't tell the women how bad Louisiana was. When people were coming to New France or coming to Jamestown, women knew how dangerous it was. But when the women were sold on the Louisiana territory, they were told about bread and honey and how it's basically this like beautiful utopia. And it wasn't that at all. So a lot of the women that got there tried to get right back on the boat and go back to France. But the captains barred them from doing that. The women then rebelled. It's known as the Petticoat Rebellions. And it was quashed by the government. These women really didn't have a lot of power. They didn't allow the women to go back to France. But word of the horrible conditions and how horribly these women were treated made it back to France. And so it was very hard for France to find future mail-order brides to come to the Louisiana Territory. Interestingly enough, the public relations around the whole Petticoat Rebellion seems so classic to me. They talk about how the women are doing much better now that they've learned how to cook with the different spices of the regional cuisine in Louisiana, as if that's what the women needed was just a good cooking class versus, well, why don't you give them the right to choose what they want to do and give them all the information so they can make the best decision? It just seems so, so classic um, to me. But they um, were somehow, you know, able to get a little bit more control of the situation. They didn't really dampen the women's anger, but there weren't a lot more women that were coming. So it was very hard to find more women as recruits. In fact, they only could get 12 more um, to come. And they were so destitute, those 12 women that came, and they weren't treated well. It's suspected that one of them was even raped by the boat captain on the way over. I mean, just horrible the way these women were treated. And they were in such a bad position that they would be willing to even take passage to Louisiana, knowing how horrible it was. And when they got there, the men had no interest in these women because they were so sick and, and doing so horribly. And women did not want to go to the Louisiana Territory. So instead, they started a new wave of immigration, and these were called the Correction Girls. They took women who had been in prison, so women who were felons. They could have been convicted um, for stealing. In some cases, they had been convicted with their husbands um, as debtors, and so the women were sent to be remarried. That didn't go very well. Um, most of the women died in passage because they had been coming from prisons where they had been incredibly unhealthy and sick. And then um, the ones that did survive weren't exactly what the men had wanted. Instead, they were getting these women that didn't really prescribe to society's rules and were known for crime. And so the women kind of ran loose um, in Louisiana. And then that ended the the Louisiana program for mail-order brides. One thing that I'd really like to stress is that when we think about marriage in the 21st century, we're often talking about love and then some type of compatibility where people can build a life together, possibly build a family together. It's not just about economics, where at that time it truly was a business transaction. So in some ways, being able to kind of make a decision about moving somewhere where you know your economic status is going to improve, that would be a very smart decision to make, where now we think about obviously wanting it to be a love match. And so it makes no sense 
that you would just move somewhere without knowing people just to get married. Um, so I think that does help put it in a little bit more perspective. But there's really the range of experience that we see with mail order brides in these different colonies. On one side of the spectrum, you have the horrible treatment of women in Louisiana, women who are ill-informed, women who have already been incredibly um, hurt by the systems. They've been put in prison. They're very sick, basically being forced into these marriages. And then in the kind of middle, you have Jamestown, women having a lot of power, still being a situation that's pretty dangerous, but overall, if a woman could survive, it ended up being a good gamble. And then New France really giving women power, women being able to better their life circumstances, and having a lot more options they could work with. And I think in part, that's just that it's a larger settlement. As we get into the late 1800s and early 1900s, we continue to see mail-order brides. I'm not going to talk about modern mail-order brides in this episode, but it's worth noting that a lot of these systems have kind of gone into a new world on the internet. There were picture brides that were women who came over from Asia. The men had come to the United States to work, and then there were um, a series of matchmaking and letter correspondence to find these men brides, and then the, the brides could come over from Asia. Um, there was a story that I found about a Japanese man who had his wife come over. The U.S. had barred unmarried Japanese ladies from immigrating to the United States. And so unlike the colonial mail-order bride systems where the women could come unmarried and then decide and they'd have so much power, when it came to immigrants um, to the U.S. who were from Asia, the women didn't have that power, so they needed to do a fair amount of correspondence by letter beforehand. Then they did a marriage by proxy so that the women could be technically married when they came to the U.S. so that they could emigrate. So in that case, the women maybe had some power in making the decision a little bit through the correspondence, but the system didn't give them a lot of freedom. One other thing that I'd meant to mention about the colonies, so Jamestown, New France, and Louisiana, was that their women were totally free to, to marry whom they chose. But there, at that time in the law, and this was back in Europe as well, once someone engaged in a, a marital contract, uh, if they broke it, then they could be sued. So if a woman said she was going to marry someone, she entered into the contract, but she didn't end up marrying them, the, men, the man could then sue her for that. In Europe, when that happened, it pretty much always favored the man. But in the colonies, when that happened, for the most part, the court would rule not to favor anyone. So it's not really a victory for the women, but the women weren't being published for violating the law. The women had often very good reasons to break their engagements. Maybe a man mistreated them or they found out something else about a man. It's basically the same reasons you'd have now to call off an engagement. Um, but the law prohibited that if they had already started to enter into a contract with someone. Um, because the colonies wanted so many women to come over, they didn't want to disincentivize other women to come over and be in the same predicament. And so they really didn't pursue any cases against women when they did breach the contract before marriage anyway. 
So it's worth noting, too, that the systems we're talking, you know, 200, 300 years later when people are coming over from Asia. But it is a, a, a different system in that sense, the, the way that the paperwork would be required for someone to be married um, and that there's really no out for these women if when they meet their husband sight unseen, it doesn't work out. There were also a lot of mail order brides in the American West. I'd mentioned at the beginning growing up in the Sierra and hearing stories about minors needing wives. We talk about those women as mail order brides, but the mail order brides um, just start by letter. It actually started by advertisements. These could be run in newspapers all over the country, and it went both ways. There would be women that would put in advertisements out west explaining who they are, what they're looking for, and then men could do so similarly on the East Coast, submitting their own advertisement about who they are and what they're looking for. Um, from there, the either men or women could write to the person from the advertisement and they find the right partner and they can correspond enough by um, letter for them to, to end up together. I have a couple of ads that ran in the matrimonial news. There were newspapers dedicated entirely to this. So just like we have dating websites today, there were newspapers back in the day that had that. It wasn't just a normal newspaper with the personal section. It was actual magazine or actual newspapers that were dedicated to it. One, a widower merchant and stockman lives in Kansas, 46 years old, Height six feet, weight 210 pounds, brunette, black hair and eyes, wishes to correspond with ladies of the same age, without encumbrances and with means, must move in the best society and be fully qualified to help make a happy home. Object, matrimony. Next one. There is a lad in Missouri with a foot that's flat, with seeds in his pocket and a brick in his hat, and with an eye that is blue and a number 10 shoe. He's the bull of the woods and the boy for you. And then the third one, I want to know some pretty girl of 17 to 20 years. I am 29, five feet, nine inches tall, a blonde. I can laugh for 15 minutes and get some pretty girl to laugh with me. I feel like I could just imagine the modern day version of this on a dating app. Do you feel the same way? Okay, the final one, respectable young man with good connection in the city, 20 years old, desires the acquaintance of a modest young lady between the ages of 17 and 21 with home nearby. Object to attend operas and church, perhaps more. I noticed when reading these that a couple of the men wanted to marry women of means. Um, so not outright saying how much money someone needs to have, but there's some coding of, okay, we're looking for a quote unquote, you know, nice girl or um, a girl from the area or someone with the first one said actually with means. So it's also clear that women or men are looking to either maintain the status that they have or somewhat increase their status through the women that they'd marry. Women um, who would put ads in matrimonial news, they were often on the verge of spinsterhood, which at that time could be as old as, this is shocking, 21. <laughs> they were already feeling like they were on the verge of spinsterhood. I, um, in my research, I heard about a woman named Elizabeth Berry, who was 22 years old. She had be, um, gone through male correspondence with a minor in California. 
she decided to move out and marry him. The state, her stagecoach got robbed the day that she was arriving, but they let her keep her dress, but they stole everything else. But she noticed on the robber's hand, this kind of really unique scar. After they, as she gets to the place, she gets married. And then after the ceremony, she ends up seeing her husband's hand and she recognizes his voice and she realizes that he's the man that robbed her stagecoach. Um, and so we don't actually know what happened to her. All we know is that she took off and they weren't together after that. But there are definitely stories of people not fitting their description. So like I'd mentioned earlier, catfishing. There were people that described themselves one way in an advertisement, and then they ended up being different. And that went both ways. In California, there was a lot of disappointment with the women who'd arrived. This is a quote, let's see, um, a Californian, it was in 1851. He said, we want emigration of respectable females to California, of rosy-cheeked, down-east Yankee girls, of stout Hoosier and Badger lasses, who shall be wives to our farmers and mechanics and mothers to a generation of Yankee Californians. So there's a lot of um, expectations about what part of society these women could come from. Obviously, very clear implications on the race of what the men considered marriageable. Um, in all of these areas, there was no shortage of women. It was just that they didn't have women from wherever they were from. So if it's out west, it's a shortage of Yankee women, where if it's in Jamestown, it's a shortage of English women. Along the topic of catfishing, I was also curious, well, were there any scams that related to these matrimonial newspapers? And I found a really funny court case that was from um, the late 1800s, the Matrimonial Herod, um, Herald and the Fashionable Marriage Gazette started scamming some of their readers from 1884 to 1895. They promised high-class matches for their readers. The prospective spouses could place ads in the paper and then work with the staff to find the right people and make the right connection. So that wasn't anything too different um, than what happened before. The difference was that the organization said that um, they were helping make matches with women who were wealthy. And what the men could do would be just to pay a small fee of 12 pounds, which at that time was not a small amount, um, but basically they could pay this extra fee of 12 pounds. So then when they made the match and they met the right woman, they would own 2.5% of their bride's wealth. If they didn't pay the fee, then they wouldn't own any of the bride's wealth. These gullible men thought, well, I guess it's better to pay this small fee now, and then I'll, of course, be rich because I'm marrying this really rich woman. The match would be made, but, oh, the bride's delayed. She needs to travel. Something's happened. Oh, we, she's just disappeared. We don't know what to tell you. And then they'd end up making a match with just a normal person um, after that. So they'd still make matches, but for me, um, meeting these really rich women, um, that wasn't happening, um, but the men were paying this fee to get some of the um, wealth of their prospective bride. It went to court. The victims had to be pretty brave to testify. A lot of them were laughed at their testimonies. So it also reminded me of how modern day when people are catfished there's so much shame put on the victim and 
basically saying, well, how could you believe something so stupid? It's, you know, not your fault that you did this crime, but it is your fault that you fell for it. Very similar attitude around this matrimonial scam. In the court case, the defense counsel mocked the victims and asked, if you really thought that you, 22 years of age, earning nothing and with 40 pounds capital only, could get a wife. Um, basically saying, how could you consider that you'd get such a great catch when you're not a great catch yourself? I feel like when we go through all these topics, there's so much to say. And as I've researched, I've pulled in all of these disparate areas and I just try to make as much sense of it as possible. So I hope that you've been able to follow the thread today. But I'm curious to hear from you if you were surprised um, about the history of mail order brides it seems so obvious that mail order brides are directly tied to colonialism. And I feel a little bit ashamed saying, I just didn't think about that. Um, I didn't think about why they, they needed mail order brides. I just was thinking more about women entering um, into these agreements. I also thought it's still same, same, but different. Um, but would be mocked in that time of marrying people that they hadn't met. It's the same now. There's um, shows, for instance, on Netflix, Love is Blind, married at first sight. We still have things in our culture that have this same attitude of being married without seeing someone or being engaged without seeing someone. And there's that question of, well, how could you make such a big life decision without knowing what you're getting into? That same judgment was put on these mail order brides. And in through, uh, and through my research, it seems like a lot of these women did know what they were getting into. And particularly in New France, they were getting into an environment that did have risk, but also had a lot of reward. And if it worked out for them, they'd end up having more wealth and more power than they would have had in France. Thank you again for tuning in to the One Sealed Letter podcast. If you don't already, be sure to subscribe. And if you've enjoyed the show, please give me a review and tell your friends. Thank you.